Amen. Worthy is the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We cannot accept any substitutes. To accept any other name than Jesus Christ would be to reject the gospel. Rejecting the gospel of grace is to reject Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's been talking about, this false gospel. Thanks a lot, guys. That's a beautiful song. If you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles back to the passage that Brother Bobby read to you this morning, Galatians chapter 5. We're continuing with the series that Brother John started in Galatians, and Brother Bobby continued last week, and I'm going to pick up in verse 7 today. Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. It seems that the Apostle Paul was a big sports fan. Now, I know that some of you here may not have anything to do with sports, but it appears that, that Paul did. Because throughout Scripture, he uses these sports analogies to describe the Christian walk. He uses descriptions from anywhere from wrestling to boxing to even a foot race. And so he describes life as a race. It's a race that he was himself determined to finish. He was going to finish strong. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the race. Now, if life is a race, it's much more of a marathon than it is a sprint. Uh, Later on, Paul said he was able to claim that I have finished the race, and he did so because of perseverance. It's not something that he started and he stopped. This marathon of life that we run takes perseverance. And the longer the run, the longer the race that you're involved in, the more trouble that can come your way, the more resistance that you may face. Uh, Some runners will pull up with injuries. Others may uh, stumble. They may get knocked out of their stride, sometimes because another runner comes in and cuts them off. And others get dehydrated. Some collapse and they're not able to finish the race at all. Maybe it's because they just weren't prepared. They weren't disciplined enough to run that long race requiring perseverance. The same thing goes for Christians. Now Paul experienced many difficulties in his race. Uh, He more than, than most. And he was afraid that the Galatians might be experiencing that same type of difficulty right now. Now, Paul was encouraged that he did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. God gave him that encouragement. He knew that what he was doing was of worth. But he was, again, afraid that the Galatians were uh, being tripped up. And because of this pervasive resistance from the false teachers, he was worried for them. Now, Paul's been addressing false teaching throughout the Scripture, or throughout this passage been addressing the specifics of the false teaching. Uh, He's been addressing this group known as the Judaizers throughout the section, and and they promoted this false gospel. They added compliance to the law, compliance to the law of Moses as a condition of salvation on top of Jesus Christ. They added works to faith that equal salvation, and this is false. They would say, Jesus, yes, but... You must also follow the law. And specifically, circumcision has been brought up many times. And so in this passage, starting in verse 7, he he turns and he specifically addresses the false teachers themselves. 
Now, this message is important today because in today's day and age, there are false teachers everywhere, perhaps more so than any other time. Now, they may not be labeled Judaizers anymore, but uh, they are increasingly good at promoting themselves as the truth. It becomes very hard to differentiate between what's true and what's false. Even Satan himself is uh, is described as appearing as an angel of light. So do not be deceived. In this postmodern world where all faiths are supposed to be equal, at least that's what they tell you, that all roads lead to heaven, it's very important that we recognize and respond accordingly to those that present a false gospel because they're everywhere. Now, at times we may be accused of being too judgmental. Say, well, you're just being too critical. You're making mountains out of molehills. Now, some may say, well, don't you think you're just being a little too critical with this guy? I mean, is it really that important? He has so many good things to say. Why are you being so critical? Well, in today's text, I think we'll see that Paul considers this an all-or-nothing test. It's either one way or the other. There's no in-between. They're either from God or they're against God. And it only takes a little bit of heresy to corrupt the whole message. Just a little. Details matter. And so the question is, how are we called to run the race? How are Christians called to run the race in response to this resistance, response to these false teachers? That's what we're going to look at this morning. First, in verse 7, we are to run steadfast. Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you? Now, we're to run steadfast because there are those who will try to hinder you. Okay? Now, the word steadfast that I chose here means firm and unwavering. It means with purpose or resolve. It's the same idea in James 1.12 where he says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. The ESV version here translates this verse as, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Paul says, what happened? He's talking to the Galatians. What happened? You were running so well. Who hindered you? Who tripped you up? Who's causing you to stumble like this? You know the feeling when you're really pulling from someone, maybe they're a family member, a loved one, uh, maybe just a close friend, you're really pulling for them to do the right thing. Uh, they, you want to get them back on track and, and make progress. Maybe they've stumbled. And they're, they're doing very well, and they stumble, and it breaks your heart. Worse than that, perhaps, you see them stumble because someone else has come in and has influenced them. They brought someone in their life that has, has this negative influence on them and now has caused them to stumble, and it's very troubling. It's upsetting. We don't like that. That's what Paul's feeling here in this passage. It's as if someone has come in and is messing with his children. Okay, he views the church of Galatia as his children in the faith. And he's upset because someone's messing with his kids. He says, the opposition will try to stop you. They're going to try to hinder you. Who hindered you, he says. Now, the Greek word here for hindered actually means impeding one's progress. Okay, to be cut off. Uh, Think about you're driving down the highway and you're coming up on some construction. 
the lanes are merging down to one lane, two, two down to one. And you've done the right thing. You've, you've followed directions. You've got off on the left lane. You're driving. And right at the last minute, right before the construction, some guy's coming, barreling down the right lane at the last minute. We've all been there. And he's going to try to cut you off and get in. And that's very frustrating, but that's the idea of this word hindered. That's exactly what he's saying. Who hindered you? Who, who's trying to cut you off in your race? And he's saying, don't let their actions hinder you from obeying the truth. Be steadfast. Next, in verse 8, we see that we are to run straight. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. So we're to run straight. More appropriately, we are to run straight ahead. Okay, no distractions. A runner can't not, he can't be distracted by people on the sidelines. He can't be looking around. When you're running, you've got to be looking forward at where you're going. Sometimes it's as if we need blinders on like a horse so we don't get distracted. We need to look straight ahead. And certainly, while we're running our race, we cannot look backwards. That's the worst thing we can do. So Paul says this persuasion did not come from God. So if it didn't come from God, where did it come from? Right? He says to look back, to look back into legalism is to reject the gospel. It's as simple as that. This persuasion is not from God, but it's from Satan. It's absolute. There's no in-between. It's either from God or it's not. It can't be in-between. Any persuasion that is from the absolute truth is by default satanic. This is why a runner must stay focused. Focus on what's ahead of. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on forward. We're to focus straight ahead. And then in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says actually we're to focus above. Focus on the things above. Colossians 3 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up in Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And Hebrews chapter 12 says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. Stay focused. Look straight ahead. Even a very small course correction can send you miles off course. You start off in a straight line and you just take one little tiny degree off to the right. And if not corrected, it will send you way off course. It's like a ship sailing across the ocean. A little small ship going to a destination. And there's a wind that's not corrected, not taken into account. And that small little wind, if not corrected for, will result in the ship being miles off course. That's exactly what happens when we take our eyes off Jesus. And when we do so, it's a very dangerous off-ramp. So Paul asked, who hindered you? Where did this persuasion come from? Because it didn't come from God. The question for us is, who influences you? Who is your influences in life? If it's not a who, then what? What influences you? There are so many resources today. So many bad influences. We live in the day and age of communication. We know this. Uh, anywhere from the stuff that pervades our homes to our schools, in our cars, to the radio, television. We have podcasts. We got blogs, Twitter, Facebook. You name it, 
there's influence to be had from false teachers. And so we are to be on guard. It looks straightforward. Next in verse 9, we're to look, or we are to run separate. Verse 9 says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. We're to not let these influencers into our lives. Now Paul uses this uh, proverb about leaven here to illustrate how just a little bit of heresy is enough to do a lot of damage. Leaven is, is often used as an analogy for sin, how just a little sin can come and corrupt. A little heresy can come and corrupt just like leaven in bread or yeast will contaminate the whole lump of dough. So can just a little heresy contaminate. It's just a little, enough to make impure. And there's no in-between. It's either leavened or it's unleavened. With false teaching, it's an all-or-nothing thing. Uh, Just a little bit of false teaching can be enough to label the person a false teacher. A little bit of heresy means that they're a heretic. It's like being married. You're either married or you're not. For ladies, you're either pregnant or you're not. There's no in-between. Now, please don't think that you can just take the good and, and filter out the bad because that's very dangerous. And you say, well, he's just such a good speaker and he has so many things to say. I'll just ignore the bad stuff and I'll take the good in. Well, it's like drinking from a contaminated fountain. You don't know it's contaminated. You're drinking it in. It may temporarily quench your thirst, but it's contaminated and over time it's causing you damage that you're unaware of. Or it's like drinking a beverage from a can that's been contaminated with with chrome. Um, you may be familiar with the movie Erin Brockovich. Uh, it, was all, it was a movie about where she's a lawyer and she is fighting big business because the, the uh, local factory was using chrome and it was contaminating the water supply. People were getting sick. They were dying. And, uh, in fact, I used this very same chemical when I ran a plant in Shreveport. We used hexavalent chrome to pre-treat galvanized steel before it was fabricated. And I tell you, I was very surprised when it turned out I was using the very same thing the whole movie was was uh, put out about. But imagine drinking from a can that's been contaminated with, with this chrome and you don't know about it. It may be good, may taste good, but it adds up and it's actually doing great damage to you. This is what it's like when you're getting your information, your teaching that's influenced by false teachers. So we're to run separate, just a little leaven Leavens the whole loaf. We are to drink the pure milk of the word. It's First Peter two, the pure milk. If it's not, if it's only ninety nine point nine nine percent pure, it's not one hundred percent pure, right? Pure milk. What do we tell? Our, what do we tell our kids? Tell them that uh, they shouldn't play with fire because they're going to get burnt. Don't even go there. Stay away. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three says, "Do not be deceived." Bad company corrupts good morals. We're to run separate. Verse 10, we're also to run sure. I have confidence in you that I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. You have to be sure of what you know. You have to be sure of where you're going what you're running for. 
We have to be running sure, knowing what we believe and adopting no other view. Staying strong. James 1.6 says that that man who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now, the best way to guard ourselves against false teaching is to be sure of what we know and to study the Word of God, to know the truth. Remember how the Secret Service doesn't spend all their time chasing down counterfeits and trying to figure out what the latest counterfeit is. They just study the authentic U.S. currency. Because the more they know what the real McCoy is, the easier it is to spot when things are out of place, when things are counterfeit. And that's what we need to do with the Word of God. We must know what we believe. Paul says that he not only has confidence in them, but he also has confidence in the Lord. We have to have confidence and be sure that the, our God is in control. That he, he's in control and he will deal with those who oppose you. Verse 10 says that the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment. So we're to run sure knowing that God will and can take care of those who hinder us. He will. He's there for us. You must trust in him and not men. Ultimately, they will be judged, and, and this should give us confidence to keep pressing on in spite of them. But as we do, we certainly will continue to face opposition. It's not going to go away in this life. In fact, the harder we, we take a stand for Christ, the more opposition we will have. So therefore, we must run steady. Steady. Verse 11. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So Paul says, look, it's not me that opposes you, believe me. All right, because I'm being persecuted for it. Evidently, the Judaizers were going around and, and trying to say that Paul was still preaching circumcision. Paul's assuring them that that's not the case. Now, he did have Timothy circumcised. But you remember that it was a special circumstance. Timothy was already a Jew. He was of Jewish heritage. He was going to be primarily ministering to a Jewish audience. And therefore, they simply wanted to remove any stumbling block that might be in the way. And they, they just didn't want to have that be a point of contention. They didn't want to worry about it because, believe me, the cross was going to be a big enough stumbling block to the Jews. Now, he did have Titus. I mean, he did not have Titus circumcised. And that's, that's just an example of how this is not something Paul teached. He only did this in the case of Timothy. But Titus had no reason to. He was a Gentile. And there was no spiritual value in being circumcised. It was not going to get him any closer to, to the Lord. So he did not have Titus circumcised. So what Paul's saying here is that I'm not preaching circumcision. In fact, the proof that I'm not preaching is, be, is that I'm being persecuted for it. Why would I be persecuted if I wasn't doing so? And so... He says, look, if I'm preaching the law still, then the stumbling block of the cross is removed. It doesn't make sense. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, foolishness. The Jews just couldn't get over. They, they stumbled over the cross. They couldn't understand how that their Messiah, their supposed Messiah, they, they never trusted him, could be crucified. It was too much of a stumbling block. He, they couldn't understand how his work could 
give them righteousness. It was also a stumbling block to the Gentiles. They just thought it was foolish, this idea that God would be killed on a cross. But Paul's saying if the prevailing false teaching, that it's faith plus works, if that's true, then the cross is unnecessary. You might as well set it aside. This is why it was such an important issue for Paul. It's of supreme importance. Because if the cross is unnecessary, because they're adding works to faith, that means that Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient. The cross is unnecessary if it is not completely sufficient. If what Christ did on the cross was not good enough and we had to add something to it, then that means it's just simply not good enough. And that's not the case. The cross still offends men for the same basic reason. Whether Jew or Gentile, all men are prone to trust in themselves for their righteousness. They want to see what they can do. And they're offended when they're told that they can do nothing for themselves to make themselves right with God. I think this speaks to the reason why there is persecution. Preaching the cross is the supreme offense to works righteousness. Have you ever noticed how false teachers take such offense to someone challenging them? It's because of the difficulty of defending a lie. It just takes constant work. Lies and half-truths constantly have to be propped up because they can't stand on their own. We see this in cults, uh, where the leadership has to take a very tight rein on its members, brainwashing them in very specific beliefs. Of course, this can also happen in churches, even those that label themselves Baptists. Whether it's a very legalistic view on certain Bible translations, or whether it's a very legalistic view on certain dress or or appearance, uh, or perhaps it's a legalistic view on certain church tradition that may be good in itself, yet they uh, put it in, in the same place and caliber as Scripture and can divide churches because of that. Now, some of you have been in churches like that when even a question about certain teaching, just a question that you're just want, wanting to know because you think it might contradict Scripture, that question is eliminated and, and it's swarmed on like secret service swarming on a man with a gun. Those that have built their little molehills on conjured truths have to keep a very tight rein on their followers, lest it all unravel. But the opposite is true for the truth. The truth stands on its own. It's easy to defend. There's power in the gospel, and we should never be ashamed to proclaim it, even in the face of opposition. And as we do proclaim it, we will, again, we will face persecution. 1 Peter 4, 14, says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So we're to run steady. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
in the first part of the chapter we're in now, chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I mean, don't waver. Be steady. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, Be on alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And that brings us to our last point. Verse 12, we are to run strong. Paul says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Verse 12 gives us an indication of Paul's strong attitude towards these false teachers. And he uses some very strong language here. And we must be just as strong when it comes to these guys. We can't just agree to disagree. You can't afford to be casual about this type of heresy. Paul took this very seriously. And he was upset because, again, someone was coming in and messing with his children. And he uses some of the harshest language that you'll see in the New Testament from him. There's no mistaking his stance. We shouldn't be afraid to call him out. Galatians chapter 1 says, If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. Accursed. And that's strong language. But here it it appears he's calling for their mutilation. So what's he saying here? What does this mean? Is is Paul so upset that that he's using coarse language and perhaps giving into the flesh a little bit and, and just wanting them to experience some kind of physical harm or pain? I don't think that's what's going on here. It doesn't fit with Paul's character. It doesn't fit with his teaching elsewhere. Now, please don't use this as justification to use this sort of crude language like, well, the Apostle Paul does, so it's good for me too. That's not what's going on here. He's very careful in the words he chooses. In Ephesians 5.4, he warns the believers. He says, therefore, we must not uh, use filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. These things are not fitting for the Christian life. No filthiness, no silly talk, no coarse jesting. That shouldn't be a part of us at all. Now, there's a few of today's modern and, and hip Christians that should take note of this, especially some of those that uh, speak this way from the pulpit. But what's he wanting here? What's he really saying here? If it's not for retaliation, if it's not for punishment, because remember, back in verse 10, Paul's already said that God will take care of those guys. That, that sort of thing is for God to take care of. Well, it's actually a couple things. One, it's an interesting wordplay. And it's also a good example of the uselessness of works righteousness. Now, the Greek word here used for mutilate, in my translation, is actually apokopto. Okay, and it, it means to cut off, simply to cut off or to amputate. Uh, it's used throughout Scripture with uh, cutting off a foot or a hand or an ear. In, in Peter's case, when he cut off the, the high priest soldiers when they came to arrest Jesus, same word used there. It's also used to cut a rope from a ship that's setting sail in Acts. Um, so the theme of cutting off, we see, is threaded throughout this whole section. Now follow this. In verse 1, it was severed. The word there was used 
severed, which means, uh, or cut off from Christ. Okay? In verse, it's not verse 1. Uh, verse 7, he then uses the word hindered, which we looked at a minute ago. And it's to cut off from a race. And now in verse 12, he uses the same cut off language, but it's translated mutilate. Specifically here, it's referring to castration. This is because there are many priests throughout Asia Minor that worship the false god Sybil, that uh, whether the priests or some very devout followers would become self-made eunuchs in their devotion to their religion. And so what's Paul saying? He's saying that if circumcision has any spiritual value, if, if cutting off part of your body will please God, then why not stop there? Why not go all the way like the local pagans in a supreme act of devotion? If human achievement can earn divine favor, then why not go to pagan extremes? Saying, if these people want to circumcise themselves so bad, I wish they'd just go ahead and cut them off completely. And by the way, it's also interesting that by doing so, for them to cut themselves off like that, they would also be cut off from, from Jewish worship in the temple. They would, they would be considered unworthy of worshiping there. So in Philippians 3, Paul says to beware. Beware of these people. In verse 2 he says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are of the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now it's interesting because in Philippians, in that verse, he uses a different word. He uses katatome. And it's a different word. It actually does mean mutilation there. It's the only time it's used in Scripture. And he describes the false circumcision by this word mutilation. He's saying that's all it is. And it's a very nice tie-in with our text today because he's saying that the false circumcision, which is the difference between circumcision of the flesh and circumcision of the heart, is nothing more than mutilation if you're trying to please God by it. Paul says to beware. Beware of those who are teaching works righteousness. Beware of those that are trying to elevate human works to the level of Christ's work. And by the way, do you know that there is one work? There is one work that is sufficient for salvation. Anybody know what that is? The one work is the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's the only work that we cling to. It's not of ourselves. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. So Paul says to beware. He says those who... teach this are, are evil workers. We need to flee from them. Beware of their influence. 1 Corinthians 5.13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. He's saying, in a sense, to, to cut them off from us or to continue with the theme we're talking about. He's saying to circumcise those people from us, separate, completely. So we must be strong. We must be strong enough to call them out. Even if we think that they don't bother us. We're strong enough to resist them. We have to identify them. We've we got to call them out. We've got to warn people like Paul's doing here. 
because there are those around us that are much weaker. If we think we're strong enough to resist, we'll do it for the sake of those around you that perhaps are younger Christians, or less discerning, or perhaps those around us that are lost, and they need to know the truth of the gospel. It's especially important for those of us who are called to be pastors. We are specifically charged by God to lead and protect the sheep from these ravenous wolves. It's very important. So we're to run fast, steadfast. We're to run the race straight, and we're to be separate. We're to run sure, steady, and strong, but we're to run. And we run this race by looking to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 says, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangled us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Jesus has already crossed the finish line. He's there. And he's crowned with glory and honor. And so the question for us is, how are you running the race? How are you running I'd like us to go ahead and, and bow, bow right now. And as we ready to pray, I, I just want you to listen. I want you to ask this question right now. Are you even running the race? Are you even running? Are you on the sidelines looking? Or perhaps, worst case, are you on the opposite team? Verse 1 of our chapter here says that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And it's only in Christ that we're free from the law, free from the bondage of sin, free to run. John chapter 8 says that you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And the truth is that you are a sinner. That's the truth. That's the truth for all of us. And the wages of sin is death. There's no amount of being good that will make you right with God. You're incapable of keeping the law. You've already broke the law. And you're guilty by God's holy standard. Now, if you don't like what I'm saying, if it makes you uncomfortable, I understand. But please don't let that be a stumbling block to you. The only way to exchange this guilty verdict is to turn from your sins, confess them to God, trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Lord. And he will mark you as not guilty and send you out as a free man. We're going to have a 10 invitation here in just a few moments. And and I just plead with you to not leave this room without responding to the gospel call. If you're afraid to walk down the aisle, meet me after the service. Talk to your neighbor. Someone here will show you how to have eternal life through Jesus Christ by his grace, not your unrighteous works. And guys, listen, if, if you're running the race this morning for the rest of us, I encourage you to finish strong. Run with endurance. It's so easy to start off strong. It's so easy to put on a good show. But what counts is how you finish. How are you going to finish the race? And remember, we don't run alone. Jesus Christ himself, he promises to never leave us, never forsake us. His grace is not only sufficient for our salvation, but it's sufficient to sustain us as well. So I pray to you and and I that we'll both 
we'll both be able to say one day, like Paul, that I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. Father, I just thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. I thank you that that freedom comes by your grace alone, your finished work on the cross. I thank you that despite who we are, despite how woefully short we fall from your standard, that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus Christ to live the kind of life we could never live and die on the cross, be raised in victory, on the throne today, guaranteeing that for those who place their faith and trust in him can have eternal life. Lord, I just pray that you will move, move among us, that your spirit will empower us this morning to run the race with endurance. Lord, I pray that your spirit will convict any and all that are here this morning, right now, that don't know you as their Savior. I pray that you will call them and convict them, and that today might be their day of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.